morning. Would you take God's word and turn to Romans chapter 12? As you do that, I need to make an editorial correction from last week, if you were here. And I mentioned about Dale Jershaw blowing things up. I think everybody knew I meant Dan, but you find me mixing names up constantly. That's just one of my proclivities, I guess. I didn't want you to think that Dale was some closet bomber. No, it's, it's Dan and it's all Danny, man. <laughs> if you were not aware of this, uh, Dr. Kine was honored at graduation this past week at LBC for his 40 years of service. And... I actually had the privilege of being there my freshman year when he started. Yes, wow. (laughs) Makes me old, doesn't it? And I still remember that we heard a rumor that we're hiring a professor that married Dr. Feigert's daughter, and we wanted to see who the brave man was. (laughs) We'd already had Dr. Feigert in our classes. But uh, congratulations, Dr. Kime, on your achievement, and uh, I'm sure that was a blessing. And you've been a blessing to so many. We also have a team that's leaving this week from, for Broken Arrow. And if you're here and going in that team, I just want you to stand up. I want to offer a quick prayer. So if you're on that team, in the back. Now I know some people are being shy here. There's some others. They're kind of scattered all over the place. There we are. Yes. I want to do a quick prayer for you guys as you travel and as you go there to bless. So let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that we have this opportunity And these these people go and share who you are. Um, May you bless them. Keep them safe in their travel. Keep them safe in their work. And as a team, may they gel together and present you in a powerful way as they venture out into this trip this next week. So we thank you for them. We thank you that we have this privilege. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, we've been talking about investment. And our two principles we dealt with so far is that God owns it all. Core practice, a core belief of who we are is that God owns everything. That is scripturally true. And last week we saw that we got to keep first things first. Seek first the kingdom. Since everything is God, he asks that he goes first. Now, it's great to know that, but we need a plan. We need a strategy. And after we put the strategy in place, then we work the plan. That's what it means to be disciplined or discipled. We train. As healthy followers of Jesus, we understand that life is an expression of worship, which means works an expression of worship, families, an expression of worship. Everything that you breathe is an expression of worship. And so it's normal. It's normal for a healthy follower of Jesus to live a counter-cultural community. Now, when I use the word counter-cultural, we understand that apart from the church, there's an underlying core moral ethic. And it's different 
than Christ's. Here's the current underlying core moral ethic. In American culture, it's do what you want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. We hear that all the time. Morality is self-fulfillment. Enjoying life is the highest goal. And anything that stands in our way, we got to change. So we change the laws, we remove the obstacles, and we silence the voices that express differences. That is our current cultural moral ethic. And we have to be careful that this doesn't creep into our Christian faith. Dallas Willard, a Christian philosopher, writes these words. The worldview answers people now like are provided by feelings. Desire, not reality, and not what is good rules our world. Romans chapter 12. Here's what Paul says about a counter-cultural community. And I'm going to read it from the message. You can follow along in your Bibles because you probably don't have this. But I like the way the message lays this out. First three verses. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it, unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you, and then in 3a, he says these words, I'm speaking to you out of deep gratitude for all that God has given me. We sang a song that he gave, he gave his life for me. And our only response can be one of gratitude if we understand that. But when you look at our culture today, and this should not surprise us, there's pressure to conform to that culture. If you read this past week, Governor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, called for a boycott of Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A finally set up a store in Manhattan. And he says, we need to boycott it because he's concerned about the history they have of quietly spreading its message of hate. That's an exact quote. What's the message of hate? They give money to Christian organizations that oppose same-sex marriage. What we have to realize with all this pressure to conform is that we don't have to conform to survive. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 6. Paul writes to a younger believer saying this, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Being trained, there's that word discipline, being trained, there's a plan, in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths, 
Rather, train yourself for godliness. See, as Christians, we train ourselves according to who God is. That's what it means to seek first. That's what it means that he owns everything. We yield it all to him. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, and it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So it's just not good here. It's also good in eternity. This is a trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who's the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So when we look at our culture, we are a counterculture. And we got to be careful that we don't develop this martyr complex saying, wow, you know, No one's ever had it as bad as we've had it. 100 years before Christ showed up, a Roman philosopher by the name of Lucretius wrote an epic poem on the nature of things. Here's his argument. This was the culture that Christ entered into. His argument is that pleasure is the ultimate purpose in life. Avoid pain at all costs. Pursue pleasure any way you can. That is the culture. Christ came, and what was his message? His message is that we're all sinners. Now, they did not like hearing that. But his message was one of renewal, redemption, restoration, recreation. His message was that we walk through pain, brokenness, and suffering. It's not to be avoided. It's to be navigated. And life is purposed to spend it on other people. We are called to bless, not curse. God establishes laws so life can flourish. And people need to know about what we're not, just not, let me rephrase this. People need to know what we are for, not just what we are against. And so often in the Christian community, our voice is talking about everything that we oppose rather than everything that we are here for. And we know the good goes unnoticed. Good is defined by Christ. Imagine for a moment, and I'm sure the mayor cannot even comprehend this, Just imagine if all the charitable efforts from Christian communities would cease. There's no amount of taxation that would fill that hole. But we do good not because we want to be noticed or seen. We do good because we are called to bless. Now, if we really believe this, If we really believe our core ethic that God owns everything we seek first, that we need to train ourselves in godliness, if we really believe this, then our investment portfolio will always start with God. And he will be our focus and he'll be our core. And what that means is that God's designed you and me. He knows what brings life and he knows what brings death. And he tells us constantly that life is not defined by the amount of stuff. It's all over scripture. Rather, he says, the value you have is that you were made in my image and that you are loved and you are cherished and you are invited into my presence. This is what I call a biblical dream of generosity. God has lavished his love on us. He has drowned us with his grace. 
We need to die to self. That's why we need drowned in his grace. He saved us and gave us life. And God's pension, by the way, is forever. It never runs out. He doesn't make other people pay for it. It's not prorated based upon your present income. And it's protected. Absolutely nothing, he says, high nor low, principality, in earth, above earth, under earth, around earth, will ever separate us from this pension. It's the love of Christ. And just think, you want to invest in something you have to watch every night, whether it goes up or down, based on the hype of the day. (laughs) That is no fun. So here's an investment strategy. Let me give you some principles. Here's the first. God tells us that we give on a regular basis. Now, while it's in the context of money, understand giving is every aspect of life, okay? But we are to give on a regular basis. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now, about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. It almost sounds like that when Paul shows up, he needs X amount of dollars, and he's going to keep passing the plate (laughs) until he gets it. But he says, listen, if you guys do this, if everybody does this, if this is a counter-cultural community that doesn't only talk about how much can I get, but rather how much can I give, he says, if everybody does this, I'll show up. And I won't even need to take an offering. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Now, why is this important? Why should we give on a regular basis? It's very simple, isn't it? If we don't give on a regular basis, we will find other causes for it. (laughs) Amen? We'll be distracted. The focus will shift. And how many times do we find reasons not to give? How many times do we find reasons not to be generous? And we make them sound so spiritual. We live in a society that's preoccupied and consumed with self. We are at the center. There was a bumper sticker some years ago that drove me absolutely insane. People would put on their bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. I always want to yell at the window, then switch seats. (laughs) He's in control, not you. Every day in our culture, we are exposed to wrong thinking and living. And it's why it's important for us to stay in his word. It's important for us to think with a biblical mindset. And what happens so often is that we get so caught up in our culture that things begin to make sense. And then they feel right. And then we find people who affirm our thinking and our living. And instead of this diverse unity that Scripture calls for, that Jesus prayed for in Matthew 17, we have this uniformity. We call it tribalism in our culture. And we see it to a degree today that we've not seen it in the last 50 years. Everybody has to agree. Now, we know that if you want to run a marathon, you start with a mile. 
You build the appropriate muscles, then you do two, then you do three, then you do four, then you do five. Same way with giving. Focus, simplicity, do it on a regular basis because it builds your generosity muscles. Here's the second principle. Give graciously and generously. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes these words, beginning in verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. Do you get the picture here? He wasn't going to ask these churches to give because they were in their own trials. They were in their own poverty. It looked like from an outward stance they had nothing. But they come along and says, Paul, we want to be part of this. They urgently pleaded with us. And catch these words. For the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. And they did not as we do in verse 5. As we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also the completion of this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. So there we see a more complete picture. See, grace deals with our motivations. It deals with their attitudes. And here we had people that were in poverty that saw it as a privilege. Generosity deals with the amount, the percentage. And in our culture, there's plenty of reasons in our world not to do this. But you have to ask yourself, what's at the center? What's the focus? I hear a lot of people say, well, Look at the injustice. Look at the hatred. Look at the discrimination. Look at how people are getting conned. So why should I put my money out there? That's the first error. God's money, not yours. It's, it's, it's his. It's not yours. Why should I put my money out there? Because somebody might take it for a wrong reason. I will guarantee you right now that if you're going to be gracious and generous, somebody will take advantage of that. But that shouldn't stop you. That shouldn't grip your attention. You should be consumed with the one who gave his life for you. Remember last week we talked about two idols, two temptations. One is to trust in our own stuff, and the other is not to trust in God's provision. And as Paul says here, it's an attitude, it's a lifestyle, it's who we are, and it's the witness that we have to a world that we think and we act differently. Now, I'm going to tell you a story, and you tell me whether or not this person was gracious and generous. Bev and I had the privilege of attending a conference out in California. And we were there, and there was a, a key leader that decided to get some pastors together for lunch just to catch up and see what's going on. We were in the same denomination. And so we had lunch, and the waitress comes out, and there was about a dozen of us, and he asked for separate checks. And she goes, I'm sorry, sir, we don't do that here. He goes, but you have to understand, he says, we have to hand our expenses in, and and we need separate checks for a 
being accountable. And she goes, I'm sorry, sir, we don't do that. And watching this conversation go back and forth, we just finally kind of agreed to pay for it. And when I did that, I looked at the bill and I said, listen, everybody put X amount of dollars down for a tip. This leader then looked at his waitress and said, can I get a receipt for the tip I'm leaving? <laughs> now, how many people think that was generous? Raise your hand. <laughs> now, how well do you tip? I know several waitresses. One was my daughter. And I still remember her saying, Dad, um, the unchurched waitresses do not think it's funny when... The couple leaves a track, no tip, and the track says, this is the best tip you'll ever get. She goes, it doesn't work. Giving graciously and generously. That's the second piece of the strategy. Those are the muscles we exercise. We go beyond what we think we can. Third principle, it's a question. From whom are we taking our cues? We got to constantly ask ourselves that question. Are we listening to the world? Are we listening to God? Are we listening to people? 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. See, it's all tied together, isn't it? As it is written, verse 9, he scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Let me break down the conclusion of this passage. Here's what it says. And by the way, this is God's word. This ain't mine. This is what he just said. The reason so many people are unthankful is because they're not generous. You pick that up? That was verse 11. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The reason so many people are unthankful is because they're not generous. They're not generous because they do not understand the graciousness of God. He said it this way one time. The person who is forgiven a little loves little. The person who forgives much loves a lot. See, that's a direct correlation to what we believe about our own sinfulness. Third thing he says here is they do not fully understand God because something else has their attention. Because if they did understand God and they did understand his graciousness, then generosity would be a direct result of that relationship. If you don't like that, just kind of take it up with him because he wrote it. I did. Here's the fourth principle. We need to keep moving. We need to take a hard look at ourselves. And when I say that, we got to look at our culture and we got to look at our hearts. I read this verse last week, Luke 16. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little 
will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? I think it's one of the main reasons why so many churches are spiritually impoverished. Because we haven't handled our worldly stuff well. If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? I guess we should ask ourselves, did we return that rake that we borrowed two years ago? Luke 16, later on, he says this. No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one or love the other. He'll be devoted to the one, despise the other. Again, it's talking about idols. We give our hearts to that which we idolatrize. You cannot serve both God and money. And then it says this in verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Think about their hearts there. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. It's kind of a nice way of saying, listen, guys, your hearts really are not clicking with God right now. In fact, it's pretty detestable. And you wonder why they wanted to kill him. Money is like everything else. It's a gift from God for the use of his building of his kingdom. And that's true with our time. It's true with our talents. It's true with our, our lives. And the power it possesses is only the power that we grant it. Now, this whole examination, you know, we do this with other people. I mean, how many times do we criticize other people for the way they live and for the stuff they have and for what we imagine they give or they don't give? And it's so easy to see in other people what we cannot see in ourselves. But Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He's talking to Christians here. Test yourselves. And of course what he's saying, listen, as a Christian, you live countercultural because you're a healthy follower of Jesus. You need to test this. You need to examine this. You need to exercise this. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. The powers of rationalization are unlimited And it's so easy to live double standards. What we expect from others, we refuse to live within ourselves, and we cannot see it. Recent conversation I had with someone of the Democratic Party, and we were talking politics. Actually, they were. (laughs) And they were making comments about the presumptive nominee, Mr. Trump. And all the bad things the press were saying about him and how he could never serve because he's so bad. I asked one simple question. Do you believe everything the press has to say? They said, of course. I says, let's talk about Hillary. Oh, they said, they're all lies. (laughs) And they really believed that. You can't have it both ways. So, the fourth principle, we need to take a hard look at ourselves, our culture, and our own hearts. Here's the fifth. Come to grips with eternity. Come to grips with eternity. The reality of it is a perspective 
and we take the focus and simplicity, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, when we realize that this life is not all there is, in fact, this life is just a minuscule piece of what life will experience. Let it be our filter. Do what matters in terms of eternity. And while we cannot understand it or comprehend it, I will admit I can't. I don't think my feeble mind that works the way can actually imagine what this place is going to be like. It was as life intended to be. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, that's where we're going back to or forward to, the Garden of Eden. It's what God meant all along. He did not mean for sin to enter this world. He did not mean for physical life to take our lives. But what we know is enough. And what we possess is enough. So Paul writes these words in Philippians chapter 4. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. How often do we quote verse 13 and we forget the verses that precede it? It's talking about contentment. Now, maybe you didn't know this. If you didn't, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to let you in on a secret. Actually, it's not a secret. It's all over Scripture. We are God's favorites. Do you know that? Now, he's the only one to get away with it because everyone's his favorite. You are one of God's favorites. You are loved. You are bought. You are purchased. He wants to invite you around his table. He wants to spend eternity with you. And if we focus on him and really know him, we will develop a sense of feeling loved. And we will not have to chase false idols with hollow hollow promises. See, idols say, I will give you freedom, and they make you into a slave. Christ says, come and be my slave, and I will set you free. Here's how I want to close. I want you to stand up again. This should not be as hard because I had you do this before. Be quiet. I want you to turn to the person that you prayed with before. And this time, I want the younger person. Two-sentence prayer. Pray God's presence into them and pray that God will bless them. Go ahead.